0: Hello, and thank you for joining me for the History of Christianity. I look forward to exploring with you how Christianity came to be and how we are who we are today. In this inaugural episode, we're going to be looking at the roots, the origin of Christianity, which of course are found in Judaism. In the year 63 B.C., The Romans invaded the kingdom of Judah. This was not because the Romans desperately wanted the kingdom of Judah, but because they had invaded the Seleucid Empire, they had taken over Egypt, and this was just sort of like one of the outlying territories that they needed to round up and include into their other prizes. What this meant was Roman domination of the Jewish state. And it was into this Roman Jewish state that Jesus was born and the early church emerged. Any history of Christianity really has to start with the history of Judaism. So what did Judaism look like in the first century? Normally when we're trying to figure out a historical period, there's a lot of just kind of guesswork and filling in the gaps. But we have this amazing legacy of these books written by this guy Flavius Josephus. And Josephus was trying to explain life in Judea, life as a Jewish person, to non-Jewish people in the first century. So, we have this amazing record of all sorts of facts about the political life of Judah, about the religious life of Judah, of what it was like to live in first century Jewish Palestine. So, Josephus tells us that there were four distinct groups of Judaism at this time. So, you had one group called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were the establishment, they were the ones in power, they were the ones who were, in a sense, normative Judaism. And Sadducee Judaism looks really different from what we think of as Judaism now. So the Sadducees controlled the temple worship, and for them, everything was kind of about the sacrifice in the temple. Temple worship was not something you did a couple of times a year or a kind of apex of your life pilgrimage. Temple worship was Judaism for them. Modern Judaism relies heavily on the history of rabbinic commentary, the history of Jewish jurisprudence, and also on the oral Torah. But for the Sadducees, none of that mattered at all. For them, all Jewish law had to come from the five books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch. They were the elite, they had great relationships with the Romans, they had the ear of the king, they were the party of power. Another party that Josephus talks about are called the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are not the party of power. Instead of the ear of the king, instead of a great relationship with the army, or the Romans, or the high priesthood of the temple, the Pharisees have two things. One, the synagogues. It is the Pharisees that conduct worship in the synagogues, that teach in the synagogues. And two, the hearts of all the people. Because the Sadducees are seen as compromisers with foreign powers, they are seen as a kind of ruling elite, whereas the Pharisees are seen as these teachers who really live a holy life. Their life is given over to teaching about God. They are not big fans of possessions, they're often living in poverty, and their whole life is just focused on the Torah, on teaching the people the Torah, on praying as the Torah teaches you to pray, on living a moral life as the, the Torah teaches you to live a moral life, for them everything is about Torah. And for them it's not just about the written Torah, so it's not just about the five books at the beginning of the Bible. Instead it's also about the oral Torah. And what they mean by oral Torah is that they believed, and as do many modern day Jewish people, that at Mount Sinai, Moses was given two different Torahs, or one Torah in two parts. That's the written Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then also the oral Torah, this Torah that's passed down orally from teacher to student and has been for thousands of years. So why do you need an oral Torah? Well, today we live in this written culture, where our primary source of authority is the written word. So if you hear someone make a crazy claim, you might say, give me your sources, I'm going to look that up. I want to see what academic journal you got that from. I want to see what famous historian or philosopher or scientist or whatever said this, because that sounds crazy to me. In the ancient world, you wouldn't do that. The written word was not the primary source of authority. For one thing, there was no printing press, there was no internet, so books were not widely distributed. In the ancient world, rather than finding a journal or a book that was the authoritative voice on something, you actually wanted to hear it from the authority's lips. Part of that, ancients would say, is because in a conversation, the authority, the teacher, has the opportunity to correct the student. So if I say to you, 2 plus 2 is 4, and you say, okay, 2 plus 2 is 8, I'll remember that, I can say, no, 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 2 plus 2, 4 definitely four. Because if you go on thinking two plus two is eight, then you start to, to kind of make up your own system of addition, which really has nothing to do with real addition. So the interaction between a teacher and a student can be corrective in a really helpful way that books really aren't. So why do you need both parts of the Torah? Well, the written Torah might say something like, be sure you butcher animals in the way that I've instructed you. Okay, Very good. I want to be obedient. So I'm going to make sure I butcher my animals in the way that I've been instructed. But then you flip through the written Torah and there's nothing about exactly how you're supposed to butcher an animal. So then you have to turn to the oral Torah. You have to go to someone who's been taught the oral Torah, an expert, like a rabbi, and say, okay, how am I supposed to butcher this lamb? And he would tell you the correct way in which you were to do it. The written Torah might say, on a certain day of the year, bring a beautiful fruit to the temple as your sacrifice and you say a beautiful fruit is that a beautiful watermelon is that a beautiful tangerine what does it even mean to be a beautiful fruit is it unblemished is it perfectly ripe like what is that so you'd have to go to a rabbi and the rabbi would say okay here's actually the specific fruit that you're supposed to bring here's the condition in which it should be this is the day that you bring it it's something that's been passed down in the oral torah but is not in the written torah in addition to the oral torah The Pharisees also really valued the history of Jewish jurisprudence. So this history of legal decisions, of legal pronouncements on various issues of Judaism. So, why does that matter? So you might say, thou shalt not steal. Great rule. I'm going to go with that. And when you walk into the convenience store and you don't put a candy bar in your pocket and walk out, that's a pretty clear case of not stealing. Good work on not stealing while you're in the convenience store. (laughs) But what about a really complicated issue let's say you plant a grapevine you're excited about having some grapes in a couple of years and as the branches of the grapevine grow as the vine starts to kind of wrap around this fence next to which you've planted it you notice that the vine is really growing more and more on the other side of the fence and as the leaves start to come out as the bunches of grapes start to come out it turns out they're all on your neighbor's side of the fence so You planted it, you bought the seeds, you've tended and watered this thing, the roots are all on your side of the fence, but it's growing on your neighbor's side of the fence. And let's say the grapes get ripe, and they start to fall on the ground, and they're all on your neighbor's ground, and so late one night, you go into his yard with a basket and you gather up all the grapes. Is that stealing or not? It's a good question. If you're taking thou shalt not steal seriously, you want to really know whether or not you're stealing in that case. This might sound like it's kind of splitting hairs, but um, if you have anything even vaguely complicated with your taxes, you have to either do a lot of research and kind of understand tax law, or you have to go to an expert, like an accountant, and say, okay, I have this 1099 and this I-57 and this H-429785, and I got this income last year from this special thing, and you have to actually check with them to say, am I doing my taxes right? Am I paying what I should be paying, in my accounting as I should be accounting, because I don't understand all the minutia of this complicated system. It's exactly the same principle. You wanna do your taxes right, you wanna be an upstanding good citizen, and so you go to an authority. You want to follow the Ten Commandments correctly. You want to follow all the all the, the, the mitzvah of the Torah correctly. So you go to an expert to say, am I doing this right? Help me to understand exactly how I should be living my life, exactly what I should be doing. So at this time, the vast majority of Jewish people did not live in modern-day Israel-Palestine. Instead, they lived in diaspora all across the ancient world. And anywhere you would go any town that would have a Jewish population would have a synagogue. It was usually built up on a hill. It was usually facing east. And in the synagogue, a couple of times a week, the Jewish community would gather to say prayers and to learn from a rabbi. And this rabbi was teaching this Pharisaic tradition, this this kind of Pharisee version of Judaism. So Josephus tells us there are two other schools. There's one called the Essenes, which are very mysterious, very strange. We have some Roman writers who talk about them as well. One famously said that this is the only community in the world that doesn't have babies yet grows by the day because people are so drawn to it. So the Essenes were a celibate men's community. There were only male Essenes and they were all white all the time. They held all their property in common. They would have these ritual baptisms. They had a very kind of complex, interesting religious life. And the Essenes may have seen themselves as true Judaism, the only real Judaism. They may have seen themselves as the kind of core group that was preserving the true teaching of God while everyone else has kind of fallen away. They lived a very rigorous life, focused on ritual purity, on purity of action, on good deeds— And they were kind of like a proto-monastic community. So some of them lived in these isolated communities off in the desert by themselves. Some of them actually lived in cities and lived out this Essene life. But they were very monastic in the way that they had this single-minded focus on relationship with God. And, Josephus tells us, there was a fourth group. And this fourth group were called the Zealots. Josephus says that the Zealots were in every way like the Pharisees, except for one thing. They really, really, really hated Romans. They thought that that Judah being ruled by Romans was this catastrophe that had to be ended ASAP. And they did everything they could to get the Romans out of there. And it was into this mix of Judaism's, these different Jewish sects, that the early church was born, that Christianity was born. So early on, Christianity is just a school of Judaism. Christians followed all the Jewish legal code, Christians lived Jewish lives, the apostles were preaching and teaching in the temple, temple sacrifice was a huge part of their lives. As they went out from Jerusalem, they went to synagogues and they were preaching and teaching in synagogues. Synagogue life was a huge part of their lives. And Christianity looked very much like Pharisaic Judaism, except for one thing. The great scholar of Judaism, Rabbi Jacob Neusner, has a book called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. And here he imagines himself, in the first century, listening to Jesus speak, talking to Jesus, asking him questions. He reads through the Gospel of Matthew with this critical eye, thinking about the ways in which Judaism in the first century and the message of Christ are either compatible or incompatible. And he comes to this conclusion that basically everything, well, almost everything that Christ said is completely compatible with first century Pharisaic Judaism, that there's only one thing that he says, which is incompatible with the rabbinic tradition. But this one thing is so big and so significant, and he says it so often that Rabbi Neusner concludes, there's no way I could ever become a follower of Jesus. And this one thing is that Jesus, he himself, is God, God incarnate, that he takes the place of the Torah, that he takes the place of the temple, that he takes the place of the worship of the infinite, eternal God, because he himself is God incarnate. And so Nussner says, I could never be a follower of Jesus because I don't believe that. So sometimes if we look at the crucifixion, it seems like the most illogical, crazy, horrific, absurd thing that could possibly happen. You have this good, kind, loving rabbi who is so generous to everyone, so patient to everyone, so just manifestly full of love for every man, woman, and child that come within 10 feet of him. And for some reason, he is rounded up by the Roman soldiers and tortured And executed in the worst way you can possibly imagine, by crucifixion. Is this like a crazy mistake? Is this just some kind of demonic thing? Like, what is going on? But if you look in the New Testament, there's actually a charge leveled against him. He has broken a law and is receiving the just punishment. And the crime that he has committed is the crime of heresy, for he has claimed to be the Son of God. And initially, it is just this one sticking point, this one point of debate that differentiates the Christians from Pharisaic Judaism. While someone reading a text like the Gospel of John might take pronouncements about the Jews as being anti Semitic, this is not actually a castigation of Judaism or of Jewish people. Instead, The early church is vying to be the true Judaism. So this is this is about two Jewish groups who are in a rivalry rather than one group condemning Judaism. Historically, many Christian texts have been misread as anti-Semitic. So various racist movements, anti-Semitic movements, have used the New Testament as evidence that there is something wrong with Judaism. In fact, these are not anti-Semitic texts. They are not condemnations of Judaism. So in the Gospel of John, when you hear things about the Jews that don't look very good, this is not a condemnation of Judaism or of Jewish people. This is a condemnation from one Jewish group about another Jewish group. These are two Jewish groups vying to be the true Judaism. Two Jewish groups both claiming to have the true lock on Judaism. So this is infighting within two Jewish groups, rather than a non-Jewish group condemning Judaism. I think that's a very important point to remember, not only in terms of understanding Christian history, but also in terms of combating the radical mischaracterization of the Bible that's been used to attack Judaism in the West for almost 2,000 years. This is a, a just a really horrific ugly part of Christian history and it's one that we all need to work together to combat. So why is it that this one point, the divinity of Christ, was so divisive between Pharisaic Judaism and these early Jewish Christians? In Greco-Roman religion, the gods were basically just like giant versions of people. So I live in a little house and a god lives on giant Mount Olympus. I get a little bit hungry. A god has a huge hunger and has to, in some sense, consume the flesh of a lot of oxen or rams or drink lots of ambrosia or whatever it is. I get a little bit jealous and have a fight with my spouse. A god gets really, really jealous and has this huge dramatic fight in which like, volcanoes erupt and that kind of thing. But they were kind of like these giant personifications of what human nature is. To be both divine and human for the Greco-Romans meant that a giant person, a god, and a little regular person had a baby together. And so that baby has some godlike traits and some mortal-like traits. So you might have somebody like Hercules who looks pretty normal, he's just kind of a normal, average-looking guy, but has this insane, incredible strength that's stronger than anybody else in the world. Or you might have someone like Achilles, who just looks like a big, hulking warrior, like any other big, hulking warrior on the field of battle, and yet he's impenetrable to arrows. So he has some kind of God stuff going on, and he has some human stuff going on. The one exception to this in the ancient world was Judaism, because for, for Judaism... God had nothing in common with humankind. God was not limited. He didn't live somewhere specific. God was not temporal. He wasn't born at a certain time. He wasn't destined to do various things at different phases in his life. Instead, God was infinite and eternal. God was all-powerful and all-knowing. So in Judaism, to say that someone was the son of God, that someone had the traits of God, the DNA of God, that shared the essence of God, that would mean that that person would have to be infinite, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing. This was an absurd claim to ma- make about a human being. What's more, it was the most offensive claim that you could possibly make about a human being, that you yourself are God who is so holy, so remote from humanity that you can't even say his name, that you are that ga- that you are God? That's, that's crazy. It's astonishing. It's offensive. Unless, of course, it's actually true. And Christians believed and still believe that that is actually true. That Jesus is fully divine and fully human. That everything you can predicate of God, everything you can say about God, you can say about Jesus. That God is the infinite, eternal creator of heaven and earth. And we would also say that Jesus is the infinite eternal creator of heaven and earth. Through him all things were made. It doesn't mean that Jesus is the same person as God the Father, but instead Jesus is God the Son, because God is a trinity of persons. God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. And the nascent version of this Drove everybody else absolutely bonkers. So now you have these two faithful Jewish groups. One group is practicing all the commandments of God from the Old Testament, and they believe that this person, Jesus, is the Messiah, and that he is fully divine and fully human. And then you have this other faithful Jewish group practicing all the commandments from the Old Testament, who believe that he is not the Messiah and not fully divine, but only fully human. But you might be tempted to say, I once saw a show on, say, the History Channel, or read a book by a 19th century German romantic or someone in that tradition like Bart Erdmann, which said that nobody actually believed that he was divine until some council, like hundreds of years in the future, that this word Trinity didn't get used until the year 200, that all that stuff came way, way later. And this is sort of a fine and a very common theory about Christianity. However, it's not actually borne out by any evidence whatsoever. It's really based on some German romantic ideas about the kind of power of human reason that come out of the Enlightenment and a kind of alternative interpretation of scripture. But if you look at writing from the early church, nowhere does that appear. And then everywhere, from the earliest texts that the church has, are claims about Christ's humanity and his divinity. So in Tertullian, around the year 200, using the term Trinity for the first time, he's not inventing a new doctrine. He's just applying a Latin word, Trinity, to this idea that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not the invention of the Trinity. It's just a new name for the Trinity. In a similar way, at councils like the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, they're not actually inventing a new idea that Christ is fully divine and fully human. Instead, they're actually clarifying and codifying that idea in the face of new challenges, saying that he is only fully divine or only fully human. They're trying to hang on to that kernel of apostolic faith. So, Josephus tells us, you have the Sadducees. This is the party in power. They have the ear of the king. They control the relationship with the armies. They control the temple priesthood. These, this is normative Judaism. They are the bosses. And then you have the Pharisees, who don't have any of that stuff, but really have the sympathy of the people. All the people kind of acknowledge the Pharisees as the true righteous teachers. How does that come to be? Is this some sort of grassroots revolutionary movement? Not at all. Because the Sadducees only came to power very recently. And this was all the result of a dinner party conversation gone very awry, where a Pharisee offended a king by telling him he couldn't also be the high priest because of some stuff that happened to his mother at one point. And he switches his allegiance from the Pharisees, which had actually been the traditional party, the party which upheld kind of the ancient tradition of Judaism, to the Sadducees, which were a very sort of new tradition, which was combining some uh, aspects of Greek culture with Jewish culture. So the Sadducees being in power was quite new, and the people had never switched their allegiance to from the Pharisees to the Sadducees in the way that the king did. This is a new development. So you have Sadducees, you have the Pharisees, you have the Essenes living off in the desert or living in their own little Essene neighborhoods doing their own Essene kind of monastic and private stuff. And then you have this party of the Zealots. So as you remember, the Zealots liked the Pharisees and all things, but just totally hated the Romans. And that uh, frustration with Roman rule got more and more intense among the zealots. And so in the 60s, the crazy radical 60s, not the 1960s, but the first 60s, the zealots decided to start taking action. And they had these groups called the Sicarii. There were these guys with these knives that they would hide under their cloaks. And they would be at some sort of public festival or in a marketplace. And at a secret signal, they would all draw out their knives and stab somebody. Stab a Roman, stab a government official who was collaborating with the Romans, stab someone who represented Roman power. And they would hide their knives again and blend back into the crowd. So these assassinations became more common. And eventually, the the zealots were able to mount a full-scale revolt against Rome. So for Rome, the kingdom of Judah was not like their big prize. They were always waiting to get, they guarded it closely. It was just this kind of outlying random province among a million other outlying random provinces that made up the Roman empire. So they didn't have 50 billion troops stationed in the garrison in Jerusalem. Instead, it was a fairly small force that were just kind of like a policing force. So the zealots were able to overpower that force and, and have this kind of victory within the city of Jerusalem against the Romans. Then some nearby Roman soldiers marched on Jerusalem. The Things went well for the Zealots again, and they thought, Ha-ha! We've defeated Rome! We are the greatest fighting force the world has ever known! And then the Romans sent, like, 50 billion troops. And things did not go well for the Zealots or for the people of Jerusalem generally. So Josephus, again, gives us this, this full account of the siege of Jerusalem, including the total destruction and burning of the temple. So the Romans go into the temple mount. Josephus wants to cut him some slack, says like, oh, maybe there was just, it wasn't entirely intentional. There was some unchecked passion. But regardless, the Romans burn down the holiest place in Judaism they destroy the temple. They destroy this place where you can come face to face with the holiness of God, where you can make a a meaningful atoning sacrifice to God. It is burned to the ground, totally destroyed. So with the temple destroyed, the high priest of the temple is out of a job. With the city of Judah overrun, there is no power in having the ear of the king. There is no army to have great relationships with, there are no Romans to sit down and have a conversation with. So the Sadducees suddenly become this kind of pointless party. They really have no more power whatsoever after the destruction of the temple and the siege of, the, of Jerusalem. The Zealots, obviously, the Romans were not big fans. They didn't fare well in all of this. The Zealot party kind of disappears for a time. And the Essenes sort of fade into the mists of history. We don't know exactly what happens with the Essenes. We don't really know that much about the Essenes, except what a few ancient writers have told us. They're very mysterious, even mysterious to other Jewish people in the times. And so all that's really left are the Pharisees. And in a sense, you have these two Pharisaic parties. You have the Pharisees who say it's completely ludicrous to talk about a human being also being God. And then you have this other Jewish group, which look very much like the Pharisees, who say, it may be ludicrous, but this is what God has revealed to us, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. So you have these two groups kind of vying to be authentic Judaism. The problem for the Christian group is that the Pharisaic Jewish group is much, 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 much bigger. So it would seem that the Christians don't have a chance. Next time we'll dive into the belief and the worship of the earliest Christians. Thanks so much for joining me for the History of Christianity.